able to come here and open up the Word of God to you. Uh, I've not been able to preach in a couple months due to scheduling and uh, where I'm serving. Um, I'm actually a pastoral intern at the church. I'm being trained by some of the pastors on staff. They give me opportunities to preach and teach and uh, just socialize and learn some basic pastoral skills. And just getting to stand here right now makes me think about how grateful I am for the calling of God on my life. Um, Unless you've been called into ministry, you can't really explain what the call is like. But I've recently resigned from my uh, day-to-day job. I've been serving as a custodian at a middle school, which is just an awful way to spend your life if you're called to preach. And it just really made me appreciate my calling into pastoral ministry, my calling to preach the Word of God. Because every single time I preach, uh, I feel perfectly fine. And then as the time gets closer, especially once I walk into the building, we're singing the songs that are supposed to, supposed to lead us to the throne of worship. I can feel my heart rate increasing. I can feel nervousness starting to come upon me. And it is the most terrifying thing. But the moment I step behind the pulpit, open up the word of God, and begin my first words, I have the peace and comfort of God that I'm opening up his word. I've done my job to prepare and study a message to present to you. And there's really no feeling like it, and it just makes me feel very grateful to be able to open up the Word of God and uh, preach this morning. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, and we will be looking at verses 16 through 20. And once you get there, I ask that you please stand in honor and reverence of the reading of the Word of God. And the Word of the Lord says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. You may be seated. And let us go before the throne of grace this morning in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to be able to gather as your church. We thank you for the relationships in this church, Lord. We thank you for all the uh, preachers' willingness to come and serve this church in their time of transition, in their time of finding a new shepherd to lead and guide them. Lord, I would pray that you be with us this morning. Allow our hearts and minds and spirits, Lord, to be open and receptive to you and your word. We're not here with any presuppositions, Lord. We're here to hear a word from you, to be transformed by your word, Lord, because we wash our minds and we're renewed in the mind by the reading and study of your word. Lord, I pray that you just draw us to a deeper conviction, a deeper knowledge of truth. Allow us to obey your words and deliver lives to the fullest glory of you. And we pray this in your son's heavenly name. Amen. So, I've chosen to preach this passage this morning, and it's commonly called the Great Commission. Everyone knows the Great Commission. I mean, who's never heard of the Great Commission? It's probably one of the most well-known passages of Scripture in all of the Bible, because we love the Great Commission. Uh, Some people even want to try to change the name of the Southern Baptist Convention to the Great Commission Baptist Convention, because we care about the Great Commission. Um, Southern Baptist churches, as as a whole, we've always cared about missions and evangelism and sharing the good news of the gospel with the lost. But it's with a heavy heart that I say that in most churches, though we've heard of the Great Commission, we neglect it. 
we tend to look over. You know, it's become something that we recite. We say, you know, I believe that God has called us to go and he has the power and the authority and we're supposed to preach the good news of the gospel and make disciples. I believe in all of that. But it's just something that we recite. It's become something that's ritualistic to us. It's simply a creed and name and it's not actually a conviction to the core of our identity. And I've titled this passage, The Great Omission, because often in the church we have omitted this aspect to our life. We read the words, but we don't really believe them. You know, we read this passage and we say, well, it says that Jesus has all power and authority in heaven and on earth, but I don't think he actually has any power. He says, go, but we stay. He says, teach all nations and baptize them, but... We're constantly trying to baptize people into our name, our ministry, what we want to do, what we want to build up. Often preachers get into the mindset of, I have to build a platform for myself. And it is a very dangerous mindset to get into. Time and time again, we have seen pastors fall from their positions because rather than building a ministry or a church centered around the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ, they build it on themselves. If you guys are familiar with Ravi Zacharias, who, um, though people are still unsure whether or not the... um, the accusations toward him are true or not, his entire ministry crumbled because of allegations that were brought toward him. Uh, I've been listening, listening to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is a church in Seattle, Washington, which grew because of the leadership of one pastor, but he grew too big, and he was not accountable to anyone, and it ultimately led to the hurt of a lot of people and the destruction of the church. We say that we believe in the Great Commission, but as we read it, we say, you know what, I'll baptize people into my mission, my purpose, what I want this church to be, what I think that the Great Commission should be about. Then it says to teach them. How often have we neglected teaching in the church? Then it says teach them to observe or teach them to obey. How often do we say, man, do I really have to obey all those rules? Do I really have to follow the Bible? Is that really what God calls me to? I mean, that's just too much. Doesn't the Bible say where sin abounds, grace abounds more? Paul says absolutely not to that statement because that is the mindset of some Christians. Well, you know, if God is graceful, you know, all graceful, if I sin more and he shows me more grace, doesn't that make God more graceful? And, you know, I'm actually doing God a favor by letting him show more grace to me. But that is a horrible mindset. So we say, you know what, forget teaching, forget obeying, and I'm not going to do, teach them what? Christ has commanded us because often we don't know what Christ has commanded us. We don't know what the Bible has instructed us to do. And then we doubt this promise where he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. We don't actually believe that Christ is with us. We don't actually believe that he empowers us. We don't believe that he leads us to a deeper knowledge of truth so that we can share our faith with others. And it's with a heavy heart that I bring this message. And I'm, I'm not accusing you of... Um, Being a church that's not on fire for for the Great Commission, I'm just saying from a lot of churches that I've visited, a lot of churches i preached at, they're content with where they are. They sit within the walls and they have no involvement in the community and they do nothing. They come on Sunday morning and that's it. That's the entirety of their Christian life. And that is a danger because our entire life as Christians is summed up in the statement, go and make disciples. And as we get into this passage... um, we see two very important things. The first thing that we see here is that there was the awaited Messiah in verses 16 through 17. It says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they had saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. 
So as we're approaching this, we need to take some things into consideration. If we look at the writing of the Gospel of Matthew, we have to ask, why did Matthew write his Gospel? How many of you guys like writing? I enjoy writing. Now, whenever you write something, you write with a specific purpose. Uh, when you were in school, whenever you had to write for an assignment, your teacher often said, this is the purpose for your writing. You have to fulfill these obligations to write this. So you had a guide on what you were to write. So Matthew had a distinct and intentional purpose in writing his gospel. And if you guys recall, the opening of the book of Matthew starts with the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. Now, this is very important because Matthew was trying to prove a point on who Jesus was. He was trying to prove to other Jewish brothers that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. The one who was prophesied from the very beginning, the one that we've been waiting for for such a long time. This is fulfilled in the person of Christ. He is the long-awaited Messiah. From the days of Abraham, when God promised Abraham that I will give you a seed, and through that seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. He was trying to show them that Jesus is the awaited Messiah. And as we look in this, it says, then the 11 disciples. Now, at this time, we know that this 11 was excluding Judas because he had committed suicide because he felt guilty over his betrayal of Christ. So he was no longer with the 11. He was not present with the 11 because he had gone out from them. He betrayed the one who was there to redeem him, and that was irredeemable. He committed suicide, and he hung himself. And it is a very dark and horrible thing. But this is where they are. So these 11 disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain. And we don't know specifically what mountain, but we know for a fact that this is a mountain that they would not forget. Because it was at this mountain they learned their identity. Christ gave them this commission, this command that would consume the rest of their lives. If you know anything about the rest of the lives of the apostles, their entire life was engulfed by this gospel. They were consumed with it. They spent every ounce of life that they had, pursuing after Christ and sharing this good news. And all of them, except for John, died a horrible death. Some were hung, some were burned at the stake, some were crucified upside down. But this was a mountain uh, top that they would not forget because this is where they learned who they were as followers of Christ. So into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them, they were waiting for Jesus. And not only was he the awaited Messiah because they went to Galilee and he said, I'll meet you there, and they, they were just waiting. You know, that was a short time. But they had been waiting for centuries for the Messiah to appear, and we'll get to more to that in a minute. And it says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Upon seeing Christ in his resurrected glory, they knew Nothing else to do except to fall down and worship at the feet of their Savior. The risen Lord was standing before them. And with joy and excitement, they bowed down and they worshipped God. Christ, they said, this is God. He's the awaited Messiah. He's the one that we've been waiting for for such a long time. He's finally here. But then it says, but some doubted. Now, scholars have debated on who this some is. Is this some, some within the twelve? or within the 11, or was there a larger group present? And I, personally, I believe that there was a larger group present because, as we know with the 11 disciples, they saw Christ in his resurrected glory. Even doubting Thomas got to see Christ and said, My Lord and my God. So I believe all of them were fully convinced of the resurrected glory of Christ. But there were others present because Jesus had many, many, many disciples. And this word for doubting isn't doubt as in uh, what we typically think about being skeptical of something, but it was more so that th they were hesitant. 
And how many of us would be hesitant in that situation? How many of us would be hesitant to see the Lord in resurrected glory, a man that we saw crucified and dead before us? I mean, that would make me step back and be like, hold on, wait a minute, what's going on here? It would make me a little hesitant at first. So they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And to understand the joy of what was going on here, to understand the intensity that they felt, I was trying to think of a good illustration that, you know, would make you guys understand what waiting for something good is like. But every illustration, every example I could think of fell extremely short of the greatness and the grandeur of what they were feeling and what they had waited for. So to illustrate for you guys, rather than using something that we can really relate to, I'm going to explain to you Israel. I'll make you understand what it felt like to be an Israelite and why waiting for the Messiah, the one who was promised, was such an important thing. So we go back to the days of our father Abraham. Now Abraham had been called out of the pagan nation, the land of Ur. He worshipped many gods, and God called him to monotheism, to worship him alone. He established a relationship with Abraham and said, Go to the land that I will guide you. This will be a land that is fertile. You can build your family here, and I will build you into a great nation. And one day, I will bless the entire world through your seed. So Abraham left. He took his family, and he went to wherever God called him to. He did not know where God was calling him to. God just said, go where I call you to. Go where I laid you, and Abraham went. And eventually, they went into the land of Canaan, which is now the land of Israel, And they were there for a period of time, and obviously we know what happened with Abraham. Eventually he begot Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob had his 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And they began to grow and grow and grow, and then tragedy struck. There was famine in the land. You know, they, they had a lot of food, they had a lot of property, but then famine struck. And when famine strikes, disaster comes. So they go to Egypt, and thankfully, by the sovereign hand of God and by God's grace, he had sent Joseph there beforehand to preserve the line of Israel because it was through the nation of Israel that our Messiah would be born. And after some years of living there peacefully and growing and growing as a people, they accumulated more, they had more wealth, they had more land. You know, they were really thriving as a people. There arose a Pharaoh who didn't like that too much. He felt intimidated by them. He said, man, they're getting large, they're powerful. If they turn on me, there's nothing we can do. So what did he do? He enslaved them. And for 430 years, they served as slaves. And then one day, hope appeared. God raised up a man by the name of Moses, and he led them out of the nation of Egypt into the wilderness where they were in exile for 40 years. They were wandering around because of their disobedience. But eventually, God brought them back home to their land. And while they were here... They began to grow, and they recommitted themselves to God. In Joshua, we read that Joshua says that, you know, as far as me and my house, we'll serve the Lord our God, but you have to determine that for yourself. Because obviously we can't force people to believe in Christ and to seek after him. And everyone in the crowd said, you know what, God is so kind, he's so loving, he's so gracious, we will do all that we can to serve him for the rest of our lives. That lasted for about five minutes if you know anything about the book of Judges. And it was during the time of Judges that they run into this cycle of sin. They'd sin against God. They'd worship these false gods because they were given one simple command. As you go into the land that I'm giving you, you have to cleanse the land because they, the people have taken over the land. They are a pagan nation. And if you leave any of them, they will lead you astray and you will worship, worship false gods. And I will have to judge you because that's who God is. He is a perfect just holy God. 
And when we worship anything or anyone besides God, we incur the wrath and the judgment of God because he alone is worthy of worship. And then, as they send, God would send a nation to enslave them, and they'd be serving a... They'd be oppressed. They'd be serving this nation because they were serving the nation's God. God often had the mindset, if you want this nation's God so bad, you can have them, and you can see what it's like to serve a false god, which is typically slavery because that's what sin is. It is slavery. And then in their slavery, they'd cry out and say, God, we are so sorry. You know, we, we didn't really mean to sin that bad. I'm going to recommit myself to you. I'm going to throw off these false gods. Just deliver us. And then God, in his grace, he'd bring salvation. He would deliver them. He'd bring them back. He'd make the oppressors go away. And he'd reestablish them as his covenantal people. And they were so happy. They were so committed to God. And then they were silent for a while. They stopped talking to God as much. They stopped being as devoted to God. And then they'd wander in towards sin again. Um, at Pump Springs, we've been going through the book of Jeremiah Sunday morning for Sunday school. And one of the main things Jeremiah talks about is the dangers of idolatry. So the Israelites during this time, in the time of Judges, they'd wander into idolatry slowly, subtly. And the biggest problem they had it wasn't that they were solely worshiping false gods, but they were trying to worship false gods alongside the one true God. And that is an abomination before the Lord. So they went through this big cycle where they would sin, they'd be oppressed, they'd cry out for help, God would give them salvation, and then they'd sin again. And then after the time of Judges, God establishes the monarchy, and we have a couple kings under a united kingdom. And then it's divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which had all wicked kings, and the southern kingdom, which had, I believe, three semi-good kings, but none of them were really good because they were supposed to point us to the need for a great king that would come one day. In 722, the northern kingdom fell. In 586, the southern kingdom fell. And during this time, they were in Babylonian captivity. They were stripped of their identity. Everything that made them, them was taken away from them. They were indoctrinated. They had to learn a new culture. They had new customs. And after 70 years, God brought them home again. And under their leadership of great men like Ezra and Nehemiah, they got to learn what it meant to be the people of God again. Ezra taught them the law of God, and Nehemiah helped rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall, and helped them know that we are God's covenant people. No matter what we go through, he always brings us back home. And it was during this time that groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees would develop, and they'd go from being groups that were completely devoted to God to groups that knew God only in name and didn't really seek after God with their hearts. And as we open up in the pages of the New Testament, we see that the Pharisees are extremely legalistic and they focus on the works that they do because they were afraid because they had abandoned the works of God for such a long time. But then they are oppressed by Rome. And it's with these, uh, this in mind that we open up into the book of Matthew that they are oppressed once again. So we see why it's kind of hard to believe and why some people doubt it. Could this man right here really be the Messiah? After all that we've been through, are we really the generation that got to see the resurrected Lord in His glory? I mean, behold our God. He stands on the mount. He speaks to us. He gives us a final command, a final commission. Could this really be Him? I mean, this was hundreds of years of history. And all the prophets, they always pointed to Christ. They said, you are sinning against God if you repent God will show his grace to you, but take heart. One day he will send you a servant who will suffer on your behalf. He promised a seed in Genesis who would one day crush the head of the serpent. He promised a king whose scepter would never depart from his hand to Abraham in the line of Judah. He promised 
uh, a son to Abraham who would one day bless all the nations. And finally, we were given a promised sufferer through the prophets. I mean, this is the awaited Messiah. This is who God is. And when we take a step back and we look at the grand scheme of things and how God has sovereignly guided everything in the course of Israel's history to bring about the Messiah, everything happened so that Jesus Christ could be born into the world so that man can be saved from sin, we have to think to ourselves, this is our history. This is who we are. It's solely by the sovereign hand of God that Jesus Christ was born into the world and died on our behalf so that we could have new life in him, that if we repent of our sins and place our faith, hope, and trust in Christ alone, that we can have this new life. And when we have this new life and we see God and his greatness and his glory, we want to bow down and say, Lord, what can I do for you? You have given me a new life. You have redeemed me. You've given me a new spirit within me. You've written your law on my heart, and my conscience is captive to you and your word. What can I do? And then here we transition into this final command, this final commission, this authoritative mission that Jesus gives us. And starting in verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world. Amen. So Jesus came. This group of people, some who were doubting, some who were worshiping, and he came and he spoke to them. The resurrected Lord approached his creation. Those who were doubting him and those who were worshiping him, and he gave them the same command. Go. But before that, he says a very important thing. A lot of the time growing up as a kid, whenever people talk about the Great Commission, they always started with the word go, and they're like, well, you can't spell gospel without go. In the Greek, you can't do that, but that's a different point. But anyway, they always neglected to say this important phrase, where Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. This is the believer's confidence. This is what we need to have faith in, that all authority has been given to Jesus. Now, the Greek word for all here is pos, means the entirety of all the authority that is in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus our Christ, the one who has redeemed us. He is our Lord. He is sovereign in our life. He gets to dictate what we do because he's redeemed us. We are his people. We are his kingdom. And he's called us to go. And he said, I have all power and authority. And in light of him having power and authority, he's commissioned us to go. He says, I will empower you. I will strengthen you. I will tell you to go. I will give you what you need to fulfill this commission because I am your Lord and you are my servant. And we have to ask ourselves, if all power was given to Jesus, who gave it to him? It was given to him by God the Father. Then he says, go ye therefore. Now, you guys have probably heard this before, but whenever we come to the word therefore in Scripture, we need to ask ourselves one simple question. What is it therefore? Now, the word therefore is a word of transition. It means, in light of what you just read, consider what you're about to read. So, in light of Jesus having all power and authority given to him by the Father, consider the fact that he's commanded us to go and make disciples, to go and teach the nations. In light of him having power and authority, we are to go. The fact that he has power and authority gives us the strength and the confidence we need to go and make disciples. This is the entirety of the Christian life summed up in a single statement. Our whole life should be disciples making disciples. 
Because we never reach a level of maturity as believers. We're always to be disciples at the feet of Jesus. We're always to go to him time and time again. Go before his word and say, Lord, teach me today. So he says, go ye therefore. That command, go ye therefore. And teach all nations. Other translations, and a better way to understand this is make disciples of all nations. Teaching all nations. Now, typically when we think of a disciple, we think of passive learners. Someone who's just sitting there and they're listening and they're, they're taking in information. But in the Old Testament days and in the days of Jesus, a disciple meant a lot more than a passive learner. Someone who was just there, you know, uh, getting taught. A disciple was almost an apprentice. Someone who trained alongside, alongside to someone. As we know, Jesus commanded all the disciples, or the apostles, he said one simple word to them when they started their mission. He said, follow me. And at that point in time, they gave up everything. They gave up their trade. Some of them were fishermen. Some of them were wealthy tax collectors. They dropped everything to follow him. When you were a disciple of someone, when you went to pursue a rabbi, you dropped everything because what you had, that's no longer your life. You know, if I were a fisherman and I dropped everything, that means I'm no longer a fisherman. I am committing myself to Jesus, and I'm going to make his life my life. His teaching is now my teaching. His way of life is now my life. That's why we often uh, hear when the disciples were talking to Jesus, they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. We've seen the way that you commune with the Father. Teach us how to do that because we are your disciples. We're your apprentices. You need to teach us all that we can and we need to learn all that we can. And we're ever to be apprentices at the feet of the cross of Christ because that is the call of our life. That is our commission. We are to continually be disciples and we're to make disciples. Then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And notice the progression here. Making disciples precedes baptism. And the first step of discipleship is evangelism, sharing the good news of the gospel, because you can't be a disciple of Christ if you do not know Christ. And after you have become a disciple, you take a step of obedience to God and to Christ by being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And I, in my study, I ran across this amazing quote by a theologian by the name of Albert Barnes. He says, So to be baptized in the name of the Father or unto the Father means publicly by a significant right to receive his system of religion, to bind the soul to obey his laws, to be devoted to him, to receive as the guide and comforter of life his instructions and a trust to his promises. To be baptized unto the Son in like manner is to receive him as the Messiah, our prophet, priest, and king. To submit to his laws and to receive him as a savior. To be baptized under the Holy Ghost is to receive him publicly as the sanctifier, comforter, and guide of the soul. We are to baptize in the Trinitarian name of our God. That is a powerful quote. We are baptized into the Godhead. We are identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We die in baptism and we're raised into a newness of life to walk in the commands of God. Then he goes on and teach them to observe all things. Teach them to observe. Teach them to obey. We can only know the word of God by being taught the word of God. There's a lot of things that we can learn on our own by independent study. But the word of God is not one of them. We need the spirit of God to teach us the word of God. Because I've talked to people before who, ag- who are agnostic or atheists who say that they've read the Bible and they're like, well, nothing's changed. You know why nothing changes? 
because they're trying to read and understand the Bible in and of themselves. The amount of times I've had conversations with people who make Scripture say something that it doesn't say because they're trying to prove a point, because rather than truly reading the Bible to see, is this God's written revelation to us? They're trying to look at it and be like, well, how can I disprove Christianity? Back when I was in high school, I had a girl come up to me and said that the biggest reason why she can't be Christian and why she hates God and hates the Bible is because there's a passage, and I think it's Samuel or Kings, that talks about how God commands people to eat their children. I said, what on earth are you talking about? So I did some study, and what it was is God was predicting or pronouncing a judgment on the people, saying, due to your rebellion, due to your lack of faith in me, you will go into exile, you will suffer famine, you will suffer these consequences, and as a result, you will eat your children, because that's what you will be resorted to. So it's not God commanding you to eat your children. He's saying, as a result of your iniquity, your rebellion against me, this will happen unless you repent. So it was a warning But when we have the Spirit of God illuminating the Word of God to us, we're taught literally the feet of God. Before the throne of God, He teaches us. And that's why we need to be thankful for great teachers of the Bible, people who uh, we can look up to, pastors, people who serve in the church and Sunday school who are able to take the Word of God and say, this is what it means and this is how we should live in light of it. And then teach them to obey. There is no obedience to God without knowing the Word of God. I've been doing some study in the book of Titus, and there's one part of it that just really stood out to me. It's in verse 1 of Titus 1. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. Now, this is the knowledge of truth which accords to godliness, meaning knowledge of the truth of God directly correlates to our godliness. Our growth in the knowledge of God, our growth in grace, our growth as Christians is tied up into how much we know about God and how much we know about Scripture. This is the call and the command of the Christian life. Then he says, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And this should be a verse that gives us a lot of comfort and a lot of conviction. Jesus Christ is ever-present with us. When we go places, we don't need to be afraid to share the good news of the gospel. At times we're afraid because we say, well, you know, it might be awkward. So what if it's awkward? There's a life in danger right now. But we get into that mindset, we're so afraid, but we have the Spirit of Christ with us. Christ is literally with us, guiding us, comforting us, drawing us to a deeper knowledge and a deeper understanding of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'd like to share with you guys today as a way of illustration, uh, put in my other pocket, a friend of mine, his name was Noah Williamson. He was my best friend of 17 years, and he died tragically uh, just this past summer. And he wrote down his testimony. It's one of the last things I have from him. And I'd like to read it to you and explain to you a little bit about his life and his calling into ministry and the last two and a half, three years of his life, because it really is amazing to look at the work of God in a life. And he read this when he got baptized as a believer. He says, when I was a kid, I was taught the Bible, and I was brought up in church. I went to Awana, went to church camp, I even went to upwards basketball. I had a faith in Jesus, but I did not obey him. I did a lot of bad things that my parents never found out about. I got sprinkled when I was five years old, and I remembered saying the sinner's prayer when I was about seven. When I was in the 10th grade, I went to Highland Lakes Camp, and I got baptized there. But then, when I came home, 
I continued to live in sin, rebelling against God, all the while claiming to be a Christian. I never really put God first in my life. My friends basically had to beg me to go to church. I was one of those friends. When I graduated high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I was depressed, and I thought about suicide a lot. Then one day, I went to church, and I really wanted to live my life for Christ. I went from not wanting to live to only wanting to live for Jesus. I started to go to church every Wednesday, Sunday morning, and Sunday night. I started to read my Bible more, and I enrolled in a Bible college so that I could learn more about God and about the Bible. The Bible talks about true and false converts, the wheat and the chaff, the bad fish and the good fish, the wolves and sheep's clothing. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 13.5 that we need to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And in Matthew 3.8, the Bible says that a genuine convert will have the fruit of repentance, but I did not. I was a false convert playing the hypocrite. I was wearing a mask of a Christian. I didn't depart from iniquity. I was still living a lifestyle of sin. In Matthew 7.21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter in my kingdom or enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Instead of looking at the lack of fruit in my life, I kept looking back at that prayer that I had said when I was a kid. And now that I've been in God's word a lot more, I can see that the way that I was living living my life when I got baptized, I was not a Christian. But now I'm obeying God. I'm going to outwardly display my inward faith. Baptism symbolizes what Jesus did for us. Just as Jesus was put into the grave and rose again, we are submerged into water and we rise. Water baptism does not save us. It is just something that God has commanded us to do once we have been saved. Now, I knew Noah for a long time. He was my best friend for 17 years. And most of those years we had to drag him to church. We'd have to force him to get out of bed. He used to be the type of person who would sleep till 2 in the afternoon every single day that he could. Whenever we said, hey, you want to come to the church and help us serve with this bread ministry we have going on? He'd say, no, not really. And he'd just sleep all day. He was unmotivated because he did not really know or trust in the Great Commission. He did not know or trust in God because he was estranged from God. He thought he was a Christian because he was doing everything Christians do. He went to church occasionally. He read his Bible occasionally. He prayed occasionally. But he never actually obeyed God because he never repented from sin. And as he began to contemplate this, uh, he and I had several conversations. And he came to a point to where he realized that he did not know God and God did not know him. And then eventually he came to Christ and he got saved and he was on fire for the Lord. That realization that I don't want to do anything else with my life except for serve Christ. And growing up when he was younger, he struggled with bisexuality and he had an attraction to men and he hid this from people for a long time, but eventually he got to share that with other people. And he, one of the things I would do, he was a great evangelist. He loved sharing the gospel with people. He would go to the Pride Festival and share the good news of the gospel. And when people would say it's not a choice, he said, yes, it is, because I struggle with the same thing, and I choose to obey Christ. He was on fire for the gospel. Every moment he got, he would go to the parks and share the gospel because he loved God and wanted to see people saved. 
I mean, he went from being lazy, sleeping till 2, 3 in the afternoon to where he disciplined himself to get up every morning at 8 o'clock because he knew he needed to read his Bible and pray because he could not make it through the day without that. And then whenever he had any time, he'd go and share the gospel. He got a second job driving for Uber just so he could share the gospel with the people that he delivers food to because he was committed to the Great Commission. He wanted nothing more than to spend the rest of his life sharing the good news of the gospel. And just a couple months before he passed away, he and I were going out to the streets and sharing the good news of the gospel because the gospel had consumed his life. When we truly understand the call and the commission of God in our life, we're compelled to go out. We're compelled to follow that, to go, make disciples, to disciple people, to teach them the law of God, to teach them the commandments of God, to look at the teachings of Jesus and say, this is how Jesus has told us to live. So my challenge for you today, my question I have for you, Bible Baptist Church, is when was the last time you went? When was the last time you intentionally shared your faith with someone that you knew did not know Christ? Because if you truly believe in the gospel, truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, truly believe in what we've read today, you know beyond a reasonable doubt that apart from Jesus Christ, that person will spend an eternity in hell because of their sin and their transgression against God. And this is the core of the commission that we're called to go and make disciples. There may even be some of you who've been in this church for 20, 30, 40 years, and you claim to be a Christian, but you've never shared your faith with a single person. And if you truly believe that you have new life in Christ and you're not sharing that with other people, what are other people supposed to think about that? So I encourage you to go, make disciples, go into all the world. When was the last time you asked yourself, is God calling me to ministry? When was the last time you had someone in your church feel called into missions or evangelism or someone called into pastoral ministry. Because in a healthy church, when God, is at, uh, when God is moving, people are saying, you know what, I feel God is calling me to a deeper sense of service, and we look for ways to serve that. You see, we're all called. We're all sent. The only question is, where are we called? Where are we sent to? So I ask you today to look inwardly. How are you fulfilling the Great Commission in your life? How are you as Bible Baptist Church fulfilling the Great Commission to reach Mount Vernon? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, and we thank you for this challenge of the Great Commission, Lord. You've called us to go when we want to go, Lord. It's the core of our identity as believers, and even the foundation which uh, we as Baptists have built everything on. We pray that you just draw us to a deeper knowledge of truth, a deeper understanding, a deeper level of obedience, Lord, we thank you for the new life that you've given us, and we pray that if anyone here does not know you, Lord, that they repent of their sins and they place their faith, hope, and trust in you, Lord, because we waited so long for the Messiah of the world, and he's finally come, Lord. Allow us to see you in your glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.